This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Einstein and Gogo on this beautiful sunny Sunday here in Melbourne. It is absolutely peachy. And, uh, well, Andrea is in the studio with me. She's pointing. She's doing stuff. I'm Dr. Shane. Welcome. Andrea, are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. I didn't think my mic was on because the light didn't come on. Oh, no. It's freaking out. <laughs> People love that light, the feedback. There's a little light, folks, uh, in front of uh, all the presenters, and if they don't see it come on, they don't feel special. <laughs> Speaking of special, Chris KP, welcome. Uh, my light is on, but I was special long before that. I, I was going to say your light's on, but no one's home. I'm glad I got in first. <laughs> I, I'm pretty happy oh, that, um, that uh, our representative from the Bureau is wearing two coats. Yes. <laughs> I'm struggling, I have to admit. <laughs> But at least we have snow to talk about now. I know. It's, it's bad when it's this pro- cold and there's no snow, cold. right? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> It's very disturbing to us mere mortals when um, our representative from the Bureau of Meteorology, Andrea, comes in and says, Jeez, it's cold. <laughs> We're like... I wasn't surprised. But, but, no. but I don't know. Maybe what you want is the Bureau people to be like super tasters. You should be particularly sensitive to changes in weather. I think it's hot or cold or wet or whatever it is. I think that's good. You should be ahead of the curve. The rest of us can realise after it's happened. Well, at least I know what to wear and I know when to bring an umbrella, so... These are very po- positive things in my life, I have to say. Yeah, I left my umbrella in the car as a sort of a, a deliberate uh, a deliberate denial. It didn't work. I got wet. Mine's right here. You can borrow oh, it if you like. Thank you. <laughs> you guys are so nice. Now, look, we, uh, we're having some phone problems at the moment. We're going to try and call Glenn Nagel from the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex to talk about the Pluto mission. So hang with us here for very a moment, excitement. folks. I'm just going to dial Glenn and see if I can uh, get him on the line, and this will be... Uh, live to air so uh i hope he picks up and not uh someone else um <laughs> let's uh just see what you better happens. let him know that we're live when he see what happens we will do oh thank you uh lawyer i have been we're caught by that guests. before <laughs> yes let's see if we can get glenn on the line good morning oh, is that glenn it is glenn nagel it's shane from triple r you're live on radio at the moment how are you going very good, Shane. Thank you. Now, Glenn, you're CS- CSIRO's uh, communication manager for the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex. What are you guys up to at the moment? Anything interesting? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, one or two things. The whole universe, basically. Uh, really, the big moment for us coming up is the New Horizons spacecraft. It's a historic encounter with Pluto coming up in just under two and a half days from now, Tuesday evening, and our station providing the prime contact point for NASA for the encounter. Is that an opportunity to get an absolute bucket load of cash from NASA? I mean, because everyone wants this information. You guys have really got them against the wall, haven't you? Well, we're, we're a part of their network. So we, for, for over 50 years, have had this ongoing agreement with NASA and our colleagues over at our sister station in Spain to provide 24-hour coverage of the entire solar system, getting commands to spacecraft so they know where to go, what to do, getting all their data back. So this is a part of our regular job. NASA pays for it all, always yep. has, and we just have a great team of Aussies here from the CSIRO making sure that we can get all this vital data back from this mission. Now, talk us through a little bit about what's happening with the data itself in terms of what you're actually collecting. So, um, you know, what equipment are you using up there in Canberra and, and what sort of information do you get for NASA? Sure. So the complex is dominated by these giant dishes, huge antennas, uh, sending radio signals out to the spacecraft, so commands so it knows where to go, what to do, don't crash into that. 
Let's want to crash into it. And then we need information and collect back home, you know. And we get that information in, we process it, and we send it off to thousands of scientists. So the data that we can get back from these spacecraft can be everything from just the pure photos taken by the various cameras on the spacecraft, and there are several on the New Horizons mission, uh, and other data from other instruments, such as the uh, spectrometry of the surface, analysis of the atmosphere, understanding the composition of the materials that the moons are made from, looking at the dusty environment around planets. Pluto, looking at the way Pluto, its magnetic field, interacts with the energy coming from the sun. So a whole range of different things, everything the science team really wants to know. So one of the best ways to think about us is we're kind of a combination of being air traffic control for space and also being the post office for the universe or the telephone exchange. So scientists, you know, design, build and launch their spacecraft. They send them off on these long journeys. But unless there's facilities like ours and our other two stations in the network in Spain and California, then you literally just, you might as well just be sending junk out there because there's nobody here on Earth to talk to them to make sure they get to where they've got to go and get all the information back. So we kind of have a saying in the Deep Space Network, and that's don't leave Earth without us. Yeah, very nice. good. Nice. Now, pre- presumably, um, this is something where there's, there must be some sort of handover that occurs at a certain time of day. So as the Earth rotates and, and NASA, you know, in the U.S. can no longer have line of sight to, to these craft, there must be a point where you guys hand over. How, how does that work? Yeah, so each of the stations is separated by about one-third of the world each. So, yeah, as the Earth rotates, Pluto and other missions, of course, out there come in and out of our field of view. So if we're tracking it, in the moment, uh, Pluto and New Horizons are a bit of an overnight thing for us at the moment. So mm-hmm. take, for example, last night. Uh, we started tracking uh, New Horizons just before 6 o'clock in the evening, and we finished just before 6 o'clock this morning. So it was nearly a, nearly a 12-hour coverage. We then make sure that the station over in Spain, the next station in the in the network as the world rotates has contact with New Horizons and then we basically hand over to them so they start picking up we're still picking up at the same time then we can finish tracking they continue on they'll track through their day they'll then pass to California California back to us and because of the positions of the three stations and the enormous distance we're talking about with Pluto then we have a bit of overlap between the stations between us and Spain it's about 30 minutes between us and California it's about an hour Okay. Now, with all this data coming coming in at the moment, I mean, it's incredibly exciting. We see these uh-huh. pictures being put up on the NASA. I mean, I'm like a kid in a candy store. Glenn, I've got to tell you, it's out of control. My wife thinks I've gone mad. But um, to me, this reminds me of back in the 80s with the Voyager craft and when we were first starting to see images of those outer planets that we'd never really had a good image of before. And, and this is even more true with Pluto because the absolute best images we have are nothing more than a blur. And this data's coming... Coming in, do you guys get to see it before it's processed by NASA, or do you have to wait like the rest of us? We do wait like everybody else. For us, it's just radio signals and literally mm. ones and zeros. Yep. The digital data coming down. So, for us on our screens, it's a it's a little wiggly, wavy line to show that we've got a signal. There's data and numbers coming through, but we realize we we do a first step of processing, and that's to eliminate, eliminate a whole bunch of other noise that's in there as well. So, just noise that the universe makes in radio frequencies, and the the noise that the Earth makes itself, just through all of our human activity. So we. Get rid of the junk mail of the universe. Just send the signal off to the Jet Propulsion Labs in California. They then do the final step of processing, turning the, the data stream back into packs of, packets of data, the pictures and all the instrument data and, and spacecraft information, the telemetry. And then that goes off to the science team. Pretty much at the same time now is that this 
their picture data particularly, gets released to the internet live. So we all get to see it, including us here at the tracking station, at the same time the scientists and the same time that everybody in the public does. G'day, Glenn. It's Chris KP here. Um, my understanding is that the, uh, the the New Horizon spacecraft is going to get real close to Pluto, and that is reasonably awesome. But after that, it's going to keep going. It doesn't come back. It just keeps going out um, beyond that point. What sort of stuff do we expect to see? Well, yeah, so the spacecraft, of course, isn't stopping. Yeah, as far as you said, it's too small a spacecraft. It doesn't have the fuel to slow down or land or go into orbit. It'll just zoom right on past. So, you know, after this nine-and-a-half-year trip, we literally only get 10 hours close up to study Pluto. But in that 10 hours, uh, they'll be taking images uh, of the planet, you know, nice, big, full, uh, frame-filling images, which will be the textbook shots for the next couple of hundred years. Uh, But the close-up images of the surface, down to, in some cases, about 60 metres, per pixel resolution. So you'll see something the size of a a couple of suburban houses on the surface of Pluto. Not that we expect to find actual (laughs) suburban houses. (laughs) (laughs) I like to make that point very clear to people. (laughs) Killjoy. (laughs) (laughs) It would be very exciting if we did. But, yeah, it effectively will just, you know, be that kind of resolution. So we'll see remarkable detail. They'll map the majority of the planet. Uh, There's an interesting thing about this, though, as they... As we're approaching Pluto, we're seeing the side that's lit up by the sun. After we go past, well, there's no sunlight then to to shine on it. So how do we see the outside in darkness? Clever trick. Same way as here on Earth, that we can see the sort of darker side of the moon by the sunlight shining off the Earth and reflecting back off the moon. The mission's targeting means that it'll actually fly by so that the position of its big moon, Charon, actually reflects light off its surface back onto the dark side of Pluto so that we can see its surface. So they've done some really remarkable trajectories and and, and course corrections along the way. They have to hit a target in space that's sort of 100 kilometres square, you know, which sounds a lot after, you know, it sounds a lot, but after a five and a half billion kilometre journey, this is a tiny pinpoint in the sky that we've got to hit, because otherwise the spacecraft's not going to be in the right place to get those angles of light, to position the cameras in the right way to get the photos at all. I, I, you know, I have to say, if they actually pull that off, I mean, normally I would put on air that I'd run down Burke Street naked, but, but these guys are smart, and I suspect they will pull it off, so I'm not going to make that promise, because <laughs> everyone's it's, relieved. It's very bloody cold here in Melbourne. Yeah. But, it, I mean, that is extraordinary that, um, I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, signal distance, you know, speed of light distance of about four, four and a half hours. Is that right? Four and a half hours. Right. Yeah, so right. over that distance, they're able to get this so accurately positioned that they're going to use the reflection of its main moon to actually backlit the. Mm. I mean, that, I mean, that is just phenomenal work. Phenomenal yeah. work. The thinking that goes into these sorts of things, and and then you've got to look at the complexity of just getting the information back again, and the signals from these sorts of distances is enormous. You know, mm. uh, the, the signal is, is just infinitesimal. It's it's ten times, it's sorry, four times ten to the minus nineteenth watts. So think of a zero point wow. and then nineteen zeros and a four of a watt. It's about one twenty billion billionth the amount of power that's generated by a watt battery. That's what we receive here but even that whisper still contains all of the data that we've got to then boost up process and show us these wonderful images from the far reaches of the solar system yeah i have to say shame telecommunications company shame for my mobile phone dropping out (laughs) relative to that (laughs) i mean we do have the technology um glenn look it it must be an incredibly exciting time for you guys i I know uh even myself looking at the what what will 
in a in a few days be crappy images of Pluto. I mean, the ones we're looking at now are just blowing us away. Mm. Have you seen yeah. the one with uh, what appears like significant geology around the planet? Mm. Oh, yeah. In fact, there was another one that's just released just a couple of hours ago showing more of this incredible yeah. sort of polygonal-type feature terrains uh, from a week ago. Giant blobs a few hundred kilometres across are now these more resolved features, quite complex terrain, and it's getting really exciting. It's getting bigger in the windscreen, and look, our team here, which are 92 are some of the best engineers, technicians, spacecraft communication people anywhere in the world, the best CSIRO team people we, we have to make sure that we can do this job, to help NASA, to help the whole world and, you know, the generations to come learn about this tiny distant world. And then the journey continues, you know, mm-hmm. after that, out into the Kuiper Belt to continue exploring our solar system. Well, look, Glenn, congratulations on the work up there. I have to say it stuns me, absolutely stuns me, that you guys aren't on the nightly news, you know, every day up until, well, for the next week at least, um, because the role of the Australian is playing here is absolutely critical to this mission and I think um, we need to we need to make a lot more of it and we shouldn't wait till someone does a film like The Dish, you know, 40 years on to remember that we had some role. We should be celebrating this now so if there's any people from the media out there, get your butts into gear, call CSIRO's comms team and speak to them so you can have a chat with these guys. Glenn, thanks so much for talking to us. We hope you haven't um, walked away from some critical work up there. Uh, if, no, if, the team's doing a great job. Team's doing it good. Yeah. Uh, make sure they get some sleep and uh, you know don't snooze off. But um, those nighttime activities, I'm sure, are tough. But uh, good luck, and hopefully you will uh, get the same enjoyment. I'm sure most of us will get over the next few days by this extraordinary mission that uh, has finally, after so many years, come to a well, let's call it a, a, a semi conclusion, but it's not quite a, climax. Know, a lot more a climax, a lot more to come. Thanks so much, Glenn. Thank you. That was Glenn Nagel, CSIRO's communication manager from the Canberra um, Deep Space Communication Complex, uh, which is just uh, amazing that Australia is involved in this. And we're very excited talking to these guys and just making sure that uh, they're they're doing their jobs. 102.7. We're back. You're listening to 3RRR. We hopefully on the phone now have Rob Sturrock, who is from the Centre for Public Development in Sydney and author of a new report, The Longest Conflict, Australia's Climate Security Challenge. Rob, can you hear us? I can, Shane. Good morning. Good to be with you. Great to have you on the air. Now, this is a new report regarding the sort of national security threat, essentially, that climate change um, is putting forward, you know, is is, um, everything that's happening there. Um, Tell us a bit about, first of all, who commissioned the report and what purpose uh, should the report hold? Um, was commissioned by a philanthropic fund that uh, we've acknowledged in the report called um, the Hammer Fund. So it started with uh, a very small little grant given to uh, a PhD researcher that turned into the paper that you now see. And, uh, you know, you're right, it's very much a focus on the security implications of climate change, which is something we just haven't really talked about in this country for a long time. Mm. So when when you say security, what sort of things are you talking about? Sort of mass migration or um, uh, other factors in terms of disasters? What what aspects of security are we discussing? Sure. So there's sort of a multi-tiered sort of effect that climate change is going to have on a national security. So... Firstly, it is the direct impacts. It's the direct impacts that we're starting to see around the world and that we're becoming quite familiar with. So we're talking about 
extreme weather such as floods and bushfires and droughts, uh, extreme heat waves like the angry summer in Australia in 2013, uh, sea level rises. So we're seeing that that's going to have a very direct impact on our society, on our infrastructure, on our ability of our military to respond. Mm -hmm. We're also going to see how that plays out in the region. So those same sort of issues are going to be magnified throughout the Asia-Pacific as well. Okay. And in, in terms of Australia versus some of those nearby countries, I mean, how do we fare? How, what's, what's the situation? I mean, one thing is true. I mean, we have an extraordinarily large land mass and very big coastline. Yeah, well, that, that's absolutely right. So as far as developing countries, sorry, developed countries go, we're quite vulnerable to climate change. Um, we also did some polling for this report too, which shows that Australians really are starting to get their heads around what this means for them. So Australians are particularly concerned about food supply and energy supply, which are two of the big issues in our region. So compared to some of the other developed countries, we are quite acutely vulnerable to this. In the region, though, with our neighbours in Southeast Asia, South Asia and Northeast Asia, they are probably more vulnerable to things like tropical cyclones, extreme weather. The Asia Pacific has 90% of the risk of tropical cyclone in the world, which is hugely important when it comes to things like increasing storms due to climate change. Mm. And, I mean, how, how much do we know at the moment in terms of the sort of economic issues that we'll face as a country? I mean, as you, as you mentioned, with regards to food and so forth, is it not possible, given Australians, Australia has quite a large production capability, this will actually be a benefit to us in the long run? I mean, you know, it's hard to know which side of the fence people sort of sit on this one. It's, there's, there's obviously opportunities to do the right thing here and opportunities to do the wrong thing. I think that's very true, that last statement about opportunities, and that's a big part of our report as well. Uh, as far as um, agricultural output and agricultural productivity go, and one of the things that we pick up in the report, and this is based on evidence from the CSIRO and other institutions like the Australian Academy of Sciences, is that there's a changing in the rainfall composition around the country, and that's affecting our agricultural areas, particularly in the southeastern corridor of, of Australia. So that is going to have a very direct input on our so impact on our agricultural productivity. So whether that's going to be an opportunity for, you know, for change in the region, you know, I, I think it's mostly around asking our heads around the fact that this is going to have a direct impact on agriculture and we need to gear up for it. In the region, it's going to have a big effect on the geopolitics. So we're in a period right now where the power dynamic in our region is quite contested. It's becoming more fluid. So when you throw into the mix things like resource and energy insecurity, big booming populations um, throughout East Asia, you know, big urbanisation and the proliferation of megacities. Those areas trying to deal with things like energy insecurity, increased storms, increased heat, that's going to become a very significant security factor for Australia to have to deal with. Mm. Now, Australia's dealt with many of these things over the years. I mean, we've, we've obviously undergone severe drought in recent times. We've, we've had very severe storm activity in, in, in Queensland and to, to a somewhat lesser, although still extreme, uh, scenario in New South Wales and Victoria. We, we have a lot of knowledge there. I mean, is the approach here not better for us to partner with these countries and work with them to help mediate these problems rather than, um, I mean, I know the sort of 
knee-jerk reaction from government will probably be around military military levels. Is is it not better for us to you know work collectively to first of all sort of try and mitigate some of the um, the climate problems we're having, and then and then work on dealing with these these um, issues that come out as a, as a community? Yeah, no, absolutely, Shane, and that's that's one of the key things that we talk about in the report, and obviously from our report. We've talked about more around the military um, cooperation needing to to work with our partners and allies in the region. But you're absolutely right. Like this is a very you know, solid opportunity for Australia to get back on the front foot as far mm. as climate change in general goes and climate security to work with our neighbours to help them to adapt to climate change and to help mitigate the worst impacts of climate change. And you know, we've got a great history, particularly in our defence force responding to humanitarian crises in the region. Definitely. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a proud and meritorious uh, history that we have in, in responding in that way, and we can keep doing that. But absolutely. So ultimately things like aid policy is a classic example where we can help those neighbours that are most vulnerable to, to adapt, particularly their low-lying coastal areas. So, for instance, there's going to be six, seven, eight hundred million people in our region that will be in low-lying coastal areas that will be at the forefront of that sort of sea level rise, those storms coming in, and we can help them now to adapt and prepare for that future. Mm, indeed. Can I Roberts? Chris KP here. Look, in terms of um, security and, and defence and climate change, what sort of strategies are other countries, um, you know, putting in into play? What sort of decisions are they making? Well, yeah, look, that's a, it's a really good question. That's something, again, that we hope we can start to see some traction on in this country. So... The United States and the United Kingdom, two of our biggest military allies, have been dealing with this seriously for about at least seven or eight years. For the United States, it was after Hurricane Katrina and all the catastrophe that caused, they started to see climate security as a, basically a mainstream conventional threat. The United Kingdom, from about 2008, has been dealing with this very seriously as well. So a couple of things. They've um, incorporated climate security as a key threat in their national security strategies, which is a fantastic start. And then, two, they're just starting to do those very uh, practical operational things like reviewing ports, reviewing uh, whether they'll be exposed to sea level rises and making sure that they have alternative energy sources for their vehicles. Rob, uh, just before we finish, I wouldn't mind getting off you the sort of top two recommendations from the particular report. What are the things that you'd like to see most in, I guess, the sort of medium term? I think we've got a defence white paper coming out sometime at the end of this year or maybe early next. It would be fantastic as a first intermediary step to see climate security and climate change explicitly acknowledged as a challenge we have to confront. That may or may not happen. It's probably not going to happen from the evidence we see. It, it seems... Sorry, to stop you on that one. It seems extraordinary mm-hmm. that that would be left out. It does. And, look, we might see some language around natural disaster or weather variability. Mm. But the sense, what we've seen in the US and UK, and they put climate security at the forefront of their big security challenges for the next sort of two decades. Yeah. I don't think we're going to see that. Well, that's a shame. And the we second one? We'd like to see a climate change strategy. So basically picking up on that point about the white paper, an actual climate change strategy uh, that ties together these issues, the issues as far as it affects Australia, the issues as far as it's going to affect the region, and trying to put forward some of those big trends, the key hotspots that we need to be watching out for, 
and laying some of that groundwork so we can really start to take this seriously over the next five to ten years. Mm. Rob, thanks so much for talking to us, and let's hope the uh, the federal government in some of these reports does start to take climate change seriously because it's going to take us pretty seriously before we know it. Um, I hope well, the pr- it. yeah, I hope the report gets a lot of uh, a lot of ground and and it is taken notice of. And uh, congratulations on putting it together. Look, thanks a lot, Shane. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Excellent. Thanks, Rob. That was Rob Sturrock from the Centre for Policy Development in Sydney and author of The Longest Conflict, Australia's Climate Security Challenge, which I think once again just um, re-emphasises, not having read it, we were hoping to get a quick insight from Rob this morning that, you know, we have to have climate change in every discussion of policy that goes around at the moment. We can't just leave it out. Triple. Yeah, you are listening to Through Triple R on this gorgeous sunny Sunday. We've got Andrea from the bomb in here to tell us how great it is. We're going to talk about snow a little bit later, but uh, don't get too excited, folks. You're going to have to wait 10 minutes. But we've got something good to fill those 10 minutes in with. We've got Janine Cooper, Dr. Janine Cooper, who is an honorary fellow in child neuropsychology at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Janine. How are you going? Very well. Thank you, Shane. Now, you work in this fascinating area of memory problems in kids. Now, I think this is something that a lot of us won't have experienced as as a, a big issue, but it, it is. And um, first of all, what, what sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of kids that have memory problems and at what ages? Well, for example, in um, traumatic brain injury, you're looking at probably one in every four children that will have a, an injury having some form of lasting memory impairment. But actually, it's very difficult to get a figure of how many mm. people, because it's actually from the ages of 16 onwards that we've got a lot more uh, data on that and it's it's relatively sort of uh, lack of literature about the numbers so that's why it's not really a well-known area and why I've been spending so much time trying to get more awareness towards children with memory problems. How do you know if a six-year-old has memory problems? This seems to me to be something that would be fairly hard to diagnose. It is actually and that's one of the things academically it starts to show um, around the age of five or six when Mm -hmm. they're starting to do tasks at school which are basically requiring them to recall what they did at the weekend and having more episodic or event-based memory recall and it's at that time point that the parents are sort of well aware there might be an issue but then the teachers start to report it and often it presents as a a child that may be um, lazy or just very forgetful Mm. and it's actually unfortunately not that at all it's the fact that they have got these um, serious memory problems so let's focus on lazy for a second Mm. Um, the number of times I've heard my wife say to my seven-year-old put your clothes in the laundry this is not a memory problem, though. This is, this is not what we're talking about, is it? No, it's it's far more severe than that. This is the inability to actually um, form new memories. Mm-hmm. Um, so there'll be sort of problems with, uh, you know, the, the formation of new memories. There's also issues in being able to prospectively plan to do things in the future. And so without the aid of, like, a diary or, or a little memory um, task sort of finder, then they're actually having major problems instigating these, these events after, after the time point that they've been asked to do them. Mm. Now, if we think about the sort of average development of a person and going to school and so forth at these ages and they're starting to learn new information, 
how quickly uh, with these sorts of memory problems does does a child get behind to the point where it's a serious problem? I mean, you talk about memory aids like making notes and so forth, but this isn't going to cut it in no. a classroom for a child. That's correct. And in fact, what's fortunate about many children with memory problems is that the semantic memory or the ability to uh, use factual information remains relatively stable even mm-hmm. after a brain injury. So actually, academically, they're doing quite well. It's when they're outside of the classroom or taking work home with them that they're forgetting what they're meant to be doing. It's also sort of forming social peer groups that's a problem area as well because they're forgetting what their friends are telling them. They'll go to um, potentially a party and then forget anything that a child has told them. So the friends get frustrated and Mm. it's more sort of... There's a a greater impact on the social activities um, more so than academically. Yeah. I I mean, in in sort of common common to the day life we we hear about autism spectrum disorder we talk about you know kids with um ads you know um all all these different syndromes now that you know there seems to be a million of them but this isn't one that we hear about why don't we hear about these sorts of memory issues in kids i I have to say until you came in here i hadn't really heard that this was a significant problem i think it's because many people just see it as something that isn't going to impact greatly and as they get older that these problems may disappear and Mm -hmm. they'll actually manage uh the many children actually develop strategies to be able to cope with their memory issues. Now, we're talking about a range of memory problems, so um, the ones that are more severe might seek uh, support, but for those with mild or sort of minor issues, then actually they live in a a world which is very difficult for them, but they use strategies and they get their parents and, you know, friends to remind them of things. Mm. And um, that's why we probably don't hear of it as much as we we should do, because it's there, it's just not being sort of well documented. Mm. I mean, we we are our, some of our memories in a way. You know, it's so crucial. We, we hear at the other end, you know, with Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative sort of disorders, you know, this extreme scenario where a person essentially loses their very sense of self because their, their memory yes. is going. So, I mean, as a child is developing, presumably every aspect of their development relies on memory as well. Exactly. So sort of your, your own identity is, is based around the diary of your world in which you're living. So mm. if you can't form this sort of... Uh, sort of self-referent memory system then you're actually living in the moment constantly and that means you can't really relate to other children or you know as you get into adolescence it's actually going to have a major impact on your confidence and that's why I think the research is very important not just to actually support memory problems but to allow children and teenagers to then go on and have fulfilling lives enter the workplace go to university and and have relationships which we all know is what we 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 get so much Mm. enjoyment from. I just love the phrase you used there, your diary of the world in which you live. I, I think that's just a lovely way to describe the way we we put everything together. Now, you've been working particularly on functional neuroimaging paradigms to, to deal with this. Tell us a bit about that. One of the things that uh, became evident was uh, working with the families and the children who had the memory problems is that actually unlike adult memory uh, networks, which are well known in literature, um, Eleanor McGuire and her team have done some fantastic work. When... Um, you then look at the literature for the the network of autobiographical memory for children it's actually very limited again so what we were trying to do is to think to ourselves well if we're going to try and develop an intervention to support memory we also need to know what is the neural network for that kind of memory and Mm -hmm. that's where the um, behavioral paradigm that was developed with Eleanor and her team um, has now been turned into an imaging paradigm at the um, Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Mm -hmm. So, So you can go in there, kids can go in there and you test essentially whether or not they can form 
the right type of memories? Is that what happens? Basically, there's sort of three different types of memory we test. Uh, semantic or factual memory. We look at um, remote memories, so their ability to recall things from more than a year ago, and also recent memories, which is memories that they formed over the course of that actual day that they were in the, mm. in the um, clinic. And I think what's important about that is then we can validate that they're actually calling memories, which actually did happen. Right. And then we're getting um, new sort of... Uh, sort of basically brain networks uh, appearing which we can see is very similar in a, in a control group or a healthy typically developing group of children very similar to adults except the frontal lobes which we see predominantly in um, the adult groups they're not yet as online so to speak but we can also now use these uh, networks to compare with children who have got memory problems and just see where in the brain the, the problem may um, originate from so it's, it's just allowing us a greater scope of um, information about how children and adolescents mm. actually do these kind of memory I can, I can imagine uh, just as with everything else with kids there is a very significant range of memory problems that you would see, some, yes. or I guess down the low end that you wouldn't see at all yeah. has there been much work on correlating you know, performance at school with the person's actual memory capability and, and you know, often we talk about intelligence, but you know, this is really storage, you know, yes. so, it's very different. I mean, you can be as intelligent as you like. If you if you can't store the information and retrieve it effectively, it doesn't matter. Yep. Uh, is is there work around that area of, of connecting the dots and sort of looking at the sort of I guess the lower end of of memory problems that we we probably wouldn't pick up? If you look at um, the adult literature, then there is a, a great deal of evidence to support them. The, the higher your IQ, the more likely mm. that you're able to form strategies to actually get by with everyday tasks. And therefore, your memory problems, although organically they might be actually quite bad, they don't present um, behaviourally as bad as, right. as you would expect. With children, again, it's a, an area that hasn't received as much um, sort of uh, investigation. But what we're finding is children that are from a family that are very supportive and also who have an open um, sort of relationship in terms of how they're feeling, that's that's actually correlating very highly. So social skill development is correlating very highly with um, good memory performance. Mm. More so that intelligence in the early years less so. There's less of that correlation which is what you would expect to see from the, the adult literature. So it seems the more support you have from your family and friends the more that your memory and um, problems will probably have less of an impact mm. in, in terms of impact i mean people come to see you guys not just to be told they have a memory problem but to find <laughs> some sort of intervention or some sort of um some yeah. sort of compensatory um behavioral techniques and so forth that they can use what is the scenario there i mean what can you offer parents and, and families that have um, children in this situation? Well prior to um, moving to Melbourne and working at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute I had worked so intensely with the um, families and found that actually once diagnosed with a major memory problem there's very little out there to help younger children and teenagers mm. so what we've done is we've developed um, a character, a, a virtual reality peer that is basically a medium to give support to a child with memory problems problems and that child can use um, a smartphone, tap on the app and then talk interactively with the um, peer and as a result of that information is then stored and can be relayed at a later time point via the peer or in text messages so they 
they've basically got a prospective memory aid, but also they can be reminded of things that they were doing in the past as well, which gives them a greater sense of independence. They're not having to go to their parents necessarily. And it could be that they, you know, they can text something they want to be reminded about to the peer. And the, the beauty of this is that it's something that uh, children and teenagers like using. Any form of intervention is, is only going to be as good as the sort of, you know, the, 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 the use of it is, is only going to be as good as, as how much the children like using it. So I, I can imagine a few parents listening to this show, <laughs> uh, sorry, just adults actually, <laughs> would love to get their hands on this app. Um, and, and, and what are you seeing? I mean, you must have a whole stream of um, your patients that have been utilising this. Is, is it having a, a big impact on sort of getting them back into a normal school environment with their friends and families and all the sorts of things that normal kids um, would just... Uh, do on a, in an average day? Well, we've been very careful to um, make sure that the children are enjoying using it. So we've, we've used it in a group of just healthy, typically developing kids mm-hmm. to start with. Yep. And now we're starting with children with the um, severe memory problems. And we've just got a wonderful case study um, which has just shown that her memory hasn't improved necessarily on standardised tests. But when you look at how she feels about her life and the ability to go out and do things, her independence on functional measures has gone through the roof and self-report is that she loves using it yeah um she just says basically i feel like i've got my life back i don't have to constantly be picking up pieces of paper looking to see what i'm meant to be doing so i have to say i'm I'm a person who says i don't give a crap about tests generally because i've never seen a test that accurately um tests a person's performance um in the real world i mean you know usually tests don't do that whether it's at school university or whatever they and they rarely take account of different learning styles different people and different different ways of managing information so that outcome has to be the absolute golden ticket for you guys that you get that. delighted and mm. i'm more delighted that it's actually going to make such a difference to the families as well as the children and one of the things i remember asking um the groups of people that came in and, and started basically with the inspiration for this uh, peer delivered therapy was i said what would you like to see at the end of this more than anything and the parents would say just my child being happy and looking forward to the day mm. rather than dreading it and the children would say if i could just have a friend to talk to about my problems it would take such you know a weight off my shoulders so the the case study has shown that that's the case and as i say from my perspective that's what we were aiming for so any additional um, improvements in memory fantastic but we're looking for subjective well-being um, improvements and independence and happiness can i have your job <laughs> it's very rewarding it is it sounds amazing <laughs> it does. look um congratulations on this work i, I think it's it's fabulous the, the stuff that comes out of the murdoch children's research institute and royal um children's hospital down there is just world-leading first class we i mean people forget Thank sometimes you. that we have one of the best facilities in the world for Pediatric health across the board Absolutely. down there, and you guys come in and you stun us every time we we get guests from those facilities. So, um, good luck with the continued use of this app. Make Thank sure you. you bring out an adult version for <laughs> yeah. our listeners, because yeah. I'm sure yeah, even the people in this room are all looking. I'll, be, yep. I'll be using it too. Yep, yeah. we all do. <laughs> um, but as you say, that the outcome that those kids are happy and engaged with with their friends and communities, um, I can admit, as a parent, um, that's all you want. So that yeah. would be be brilliant. So well done. Thank Thanks you. so much, Janine Cooper, for coming in. Thank you. Dr. Janine Cooper is an honorary fellow in child neuropsychology at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Royal Children's Hospital and doing some amazing work helping kids with memory. Three, triple, now, we did have a question come through uh, during the break. Um, 
who asked what is the best place to go to to see or watch uh, the Pluto stuff, I would say get yourself onto the NASA.gov website, and there you can see um, they have a NASA TV channel, which is um, pretty cool. And unbeknownst to my two co-hosts here, while they've been boring me, I've been watching it during the show. Did you guys know that? Yes, I you kept, you kept that. looking. Well, yeah. I kept looking. Well, I mean, just to, I mean, I'm just going to prove it to the listeners because which is technically not the correct way of saying it. So you want to refer to it as being weightless. Yeah, yeah, you know. Progress cargo ship. That's what I've been doing the whole show, just listening to NASA TV. Well, you did incredibly well staying focused, really. <laughs> anyway, get, get, get on board to that. They, they have uh, the NASA website, nasa.gov, has all the latest pictures on um, on the Pluto flyby, and we'll have uh, some great videos and stuff to watch too with regards to information. So check that out. Now, Andrea. Yes. Why isn't it snowing? It is snowing. Well, it wasn't snowing when I was on Lake Mountain yesterday. <laughs> no, you're in the wrong spot. <laughs> now, I thought it was victim blaming. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I mean, how does snow form? What, what sort of conditions do you need to get snow? Well, you obviously need it to be below freezing. I thought you were going to say bloody cold for a second. Yeah, yes, I don't know. <laughs> that too. That too. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, a, it's an ice crystal, so yep. it's got to be below freezing. But there also needs to be uh, some moisture in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Antarctica is one of the is the coldest place on one of the coldest places on Earth, but it's actually one of the driest places on Earth as well. So um, you don't actually get as much snow there right. perhaps as you might get in other places mm. where there's more moisture in the atmosphere so someone did actually ask me if it can ever be too cold for snow um temperature wise no, no um because if it's below freezing you can get ice but mm. um but relative to the amount of moisture in the air yes if it's too dry if it's so cold that there's no moisture um then no you can't get snow forming. Now, here's a difficult question for you. Well, I have to give you the tough ones. Yesterday, while I was at Lake Mountain, at one stage I got pelted with a bit of hail. Yes. Mm. Why do we get hail and not snow? I mean, hail obviously is frozen water. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, is I mean, what's happening there? Why do we get hail and not snow? Well, the hail is actually forming quite high up in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, and it's basically like being... Oh, if you think of a thunderstorm, you suck the air up in... High, really high up into the atmosphere. That's where the ice crystals oh. form. The longer they stay up there, the uh, bigger the crystals will yep. be. Um, and then if they come back down to Earth very quickly, then they stay large enough um, that they're hail. So oh. it, it, you need to have, I guess, um, a downburst or a shower, something bringing the air down very quickly um, to get the hail. So, so we we often have the small hail um, when it's really cold, when you've got showers kind of moving through. So does, does snow then form... Um Faster than hail. I mean, you know, I know, I know that obviously there's large and small hail, as you're saying, but is, yeah. is that is that oversimplifying it too much? I think uh, I, I don't know the exact answer to that, but um, for a, a hail to form, you would need like a nuclei mm-hmm. um, for then the the ice crystals to grow around sure. that nuclei. Um, whereas I don't think that's the case with snow. Mm. So um, mm. yeah, I'm not exactly sure of the answer, mm. but. There's definitely some science at work. There. <laughs> well, what? Yeah, what do you think? There's science everywhere. Uh, now, this this weekend, um, people have been talking about this Antarctic vortex, and some, some idiot from the media. Sorry, it, it might have been a very nice person, but you know they pull these names out of somewhere, um, which generally is not a nice place. And In my experience, think, it tends to be just people trying to outdo each other. Yeah, is it is it just winter? 
Yeah, it yeah. is. It is winter. I so mean, there's some parts of Australia where um, it's been quite unusual. So um, parts of New South Wales and Queensland, <laughs> it, it does snow up on the, the border ranges up yeah, there yeah, probably once up. every five or ten years right, or right. something. Um, and But, yeah, to get sort of snow quite low levels in New South Wales is fairly unusual, whereas mm. for us it happens every year pretty yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, for those parts, definitely it's been quite interesting for us. It's clearly been interesting, but... We we see we saw this in May. Mm. <laughs> right, um, yeah, we had yeah, snow down to yeah, low yeah. levels in May. We got a really good burst of snow for the opening of the snow season. That's so right. for us in Victoria, mm. this is winter. <laughs> you know, I heard something even more stupid than that. I heard a football commentator uh, on Friday night mention that um, we were expecting an Arctic blast. <laughs> I'm thinking, probably not, Probably mate. Antarctic. <laughs> I suspect it wasn't Arctic. <laughs> I'm not a meteorologist. Uh, <laughs> you say that again. Um, <laughs> so how, how long, um, I mean, I, I know you could answer this by just saying for all of winter, but how long is this sort of bit of a cold snap we've got over the next few days going to last, you think? Yeah, well, um, partic- this particular one, it's sort of in two forms. Um, we started to get really cold on Friday, um, and we had a, a big cold front come through Saturday. Ahead of that, we had lots of snow on the Alpine areas mm-hmm. um, and that's because um, we had the northerly winds um, basically mm. for the, the alpine areas they get their best snow in the northerly um, because the air is being pushed up over the mountains um, and the, the majority of our resorts are on the northern side of the right. mountain um, but then the cold front moved through and everything went southwesterly in the southwesterly lake mountain borbor um, places like that mm-hmm. get the better I caught the more, the brunt of the snow, yep. I suppose. So from today um, through till probably about Wednesday, it'll be the southern side of the the ranges that'll get the best yeah. best snow. Then we'll have another cold burst coming through, um, but that's probably going to move more up into New South Wales again than us. Okay. Um, but we're going to stay cold all this week and and temperatures below zero uh, yeah. on the alpine areas all this week so Sounds good. yeah we could have mm. quite a bit more snow hopefully well don't go to lake mountain folks it absolutely is dreadful they're a terrible place to go oh don't say that we love <laughs> the people at lake want, mountain i don't want more people going up there the bloody secret's out i was there on saturday there was heaps of people there i mean this used to be a secret place of you just need to create to. you can just look, i think you're not going to stop people going to lake mountain but you can you can basically lie about there being some sort of disease out there <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> snow fever yeah. Yeah, there's a whole lot of dead cows in the road. You, won't, you have to walk like a kilometre to get yeah, to the summit, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, yeah, this is pretty nice up there, actually. <laughs> I'm trying to put people off. Anyway, get involved in the snow, folks. Uh, it's really uh, it's fun. It's winter, and we have to embrace it. We live in Melbourne. If you don't like it, move to Queensland. Otherwise, stay here with us. If it's You've this been... cold, you have, to, you have to have snow. Yeah, got to have snow. <laughs> folks, uh, thanks for listening today. Uh, we'll be back again next week. The next time I'm this excited about something like Pluto, we'll be the Radiothon in about five weeks. Uh, So until then, remember, science is everywhere. Thanks so much for tuning in, and have a great and toasty Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.